You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. Today's teaching is lesson number nine from Gentle and Lowly, covering chapters 19 through 21. Good evening, ladies. It's hard to believe that this is the last time that I get to see you all from this vantage point. The semester just goes so fast, right? It's one of those things where it's slow when we're in the middle, but then we look back and we can't believe where the time has gone. Um, this semester has stretched me and helped me to grow in my understanding and love for the Lord. And I really hope that it has done the same for you. Um, so we're going to pray that the Lord will continue that work tonight. Lord, we want to stop and thank you for your endless mercy and love that follow us through all of our days. I pray that you would give everyone here soft hearts to hear what it is that you want to speak to them. Lord, may we become quiet so that you may be exalted. I pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. So as you read chapter nine, you might have felt a little bit of a sense of deja vu, that we had already been here and already done this, right? Um, So once again, we ventured into the bottomless fount of God's mercy. And while it may have seemed a little bit repetitive, I hope it helped to drive home the crucial point of our faith, that the Lord's mercy is abounding and everlasting for those whose righteousness is found in the saving blood of Christ. Since we've been talking about it for a few weeks now, I wanna take a minute and actually define mercy. So mercy, or kesed in the Hebrew, or aleus in the Greek, is defined as compassion shown to an offender. It's often a blessing that is an act of divine favor or compassion. And what I found most interesting is that it's tied to the word clemency, which means a disposition to moderate the severity of punishment due. So as you read about God being rich in mercy, what it means is that he is abounding in compassion and favor and that he holds back our punishment again and again and again. You know one of the things I love most about the Lord? So I love how he reveals certain parts of himself over and over again until my distracted mind actually stops and takes notice of what he's trying to tell me. So this exact thing happened to me this morning. What I'm about to tell you was a late night edition, like an hour and a half ago. (laughs) Um, But it struck me this morning, I really felt like I wanted to include it tonight. So I'm currently listening um, my way through some of the Old Testament. And today I was in Nehemiah 9. So just to give you a little bit of context, the the book of Nehemiah follows the Israelites who had returned from exile in Babylon. They had just been punished for the horrible sins that they had committed and they're navigating what it looks like to turn back to the Lord and live by the law again. So in the middle of listening um, about the law, it's being read aloud to the Israelites, I heard, these first, I heard these few verses and it made me stop and really listen. Nehemiah 9, 16 through 17 says, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Some of that probably sounds pretty familiar from Exodus, right? Just a few lines later in verses 30 through 31, it says, many years you bore with them and warmed them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. 
Here in the middle of the Old Testament is so much of God's mercy, right? We just have to look for it and be ready to hear it. I've been studying and writing about his mercy all week, but it hit me fresh again this morning when I heard these verses. Our God is so full of mercy, so gracious, so ready to forgive, all to a degree that we can't even imagine. So we'll jump back to the New Testament and back into the book. So we camped out in Ephesians 2, one through six in the first chapter of this lesson. And I wanna read the first few verses tonight because I think if we grew up in the church or if we've been believers for a long time, it's easy to understand the concept of mercy at a head level, um, but not allow it to actually penetrate us at the heart level. So Ephesians 2, one through three says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. If I asked you, why do we need mercy? What would be your answer? Our rote response might be true and accurate. We need mercy because we're sinners, but do we really understand and feel the weight of why we need mercy? Do we understand that we need mercy because of the garbage that we were living in before we knew Jesus Christ? Whether our sins of choice were murder and adultery or gossip and jealousy, before we knew Christ, we were dead. As Ortland puts it on page 175, we can be immoral dead people or moral dead people, but either way, we're dead. I don't know what your sins are that you've battled, that you've conquered, that you're wrestling with right now, but I hope that you're not viewing that sin with rose-colored glasses. Until we feel the weight of our sin from the help of the Holy Spirit, Christ's work will feel cheap and be simply something that we just talk about at church sometimes. Only when we see our sins as darkness and death can we inhale the sweet mercy of God like a suffocating man inhales oxygen. And how can we do this? Through Christ. Because Christ came to raise dead people. It is by Christ's saving work on the cross that we get to experience the rich mercy of the Father. And that mercy is rich. I'm gonna paraphrase what Ortland writes on page 175 and 76, but he states that God's mercy healed our ever-present passions of flesh, our predilection of enthroning ourselves, and our constant exhalation of self-destruction. Remember the wrath that we talked about two weeks ago? We were its children, destined to inherit, inherit it save for the intervening, saving work of Christ. But now, now that Christ came and that we have aligned our lives with him, Orland says on page 178, for God to bring his rich mercy to an end, Jesus Christ would have to be sucked down out of heaven and put back in the tomb, just like we heard him say a couple minutes ago. God's mercy and love are active. They're always flowing more and more as we need them. It's not a tank that runs dry, but a spring in which there is no bottom. When we take mercy from the Lord, more mercy runs forth, and it's fed by what Ortland calls his invincible love. And I looked up invincible. The definition means incapable of being subdued, toned down, or reduced. That is how the Lord's love is described. If you were with us in the spring when we studied Exodus, the idea of saved from and saved for might be familiar to you. And as I read the passage in Ephesians, my mind kept going back to it, because I believe that there are parallels in the two situations. As the Israelites were saved from Egypt, we were saved from our flesh and the darkness of the world. And both of these things were by God's mercy. 
the Israelites were saved for God's glory, to show the world who the Lord is. And if we read on into verse seven of Ephesians two, we see that we were saved so that God might show the riches of his grace through us. So we were also saved to bring God glory. The Lord has been writing the same story throughout history. For centuries, he has been showing mercy to his people and bringing glory to his name. In the brokenness of our human nature, the presence of this much mercy can drive us to two extremes. It can either push us towards feeling like we have to earn it or live up to it, or, um, it, and this is what we call works-based faith, works-based faith, which I want to stress is not the gospel, or it can push us into cheap grace, causing us to chase after the fleeting pleasure of sin and keep Christ's grace and forgiveness as our contingency plan when sin gets too messy. I'm gonna talk about the first extreme now, and I'll return to the second one later. So Orland outlines in chapter 20 how we humans tend to live from a place where we must work for Christ's favor. Tying the love of God to our obedience in some equation where more obedience equals more love. But this just isn't true. Christ came and made a new covenant because under the old covenant there was no hope of salvation because we couldn't keep its laws. Peter, James, and Paul, the founders of the Christian church, all speak towards this. I'm not gonna read all of them, but there are many references um, up on the screen that you can write down if you wanna dig into this later. So at the Jerusalem Council, Peter states in Acts 15, 10 through 11, that the law was a yoke that neither their fathers nor they themselves had been able to bear. So it was unfair to put the weight of the law on the Gentiles. He continued on to say, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. James states in his letter in chapter two, verse 10, that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Lost my spot, guys. Um, and Paul discusses this in many of his letters as well. And we looked at a few verses in Galatians, but I wanna add one more. Chapter two, verse 21, Paul states that if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Friends, when we start to try to earn our salvation or the Lord's favor by our works, we not, not only will we fail, but while we are doing it, we claim Christ's death as meaningless. And if this is the grave implication, then why are our hearts bent on this earning mentality? Because we desire outcomes that are just and fair. I have a friend whose soul craves justice. She finds it hard to receive and extend grace. I find myself on the other side of the coin. I thirst for grace, almost to a fault. Sometimes I forget that sin requires payment and punishment. We're good for one another. We each show a different characteristic of the Lord to the other. I can remind her to be gracious even when she feels righteous anger towards someone that has wronged her or wronged someone she loves. And she reminds me to be righteously angry at the hurt that is caused by sin. But how can we both find satisfaction for the desires of our heart? Desires that I believe come from the image of God in us. We find it at the cross. On page 187, Orland describes how Christ satisfied the need and longing for justice of those hurt by sin. He took the punishment. It wasn't forgotten or neglected. It was enacted on Jesus himself. And the grace, it was there at the cross too. And the fact that an innocent man took the punishment on himself, that belonged to me, that belonged to you. Justice and mercy and grace intertwined as Jesus breathed his last. Ephesians 2, four through five says, but, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
We can avoid works-based salvation when we rest in the knowledge of Ephesians 2. Christ loved us and saved us while we were enemies, while we were swimming in our depravity. We didn't earn our salvation at the beginning, so what makes us think that we need to earn the Lord's favor now that we are his children? Part of the cause of this mindset is because we're humans, and as humans, we often project human qualities onto the Lord. So when we're confronted with the darkness of our sin, we can tend to assume that the Lord would be disgusted by that darkness, as most humans would. This is a false assumption, and I'll return to it in a minute. But first, I wanna take a small tangent. As we continue on our walk with Christ, and we are slowly sanctified by the Spirit, He changes our hearts and helps us to see the true darkness of our sin. I have a love-hate relationship with this concept in that my renewed spirit loves it, but my flesh hates it. Sinning was so much easier when I wasn't immediately convicted after I committed a sin, right? As I prepared for this week, I kept coming back to the idea of sin being like candy. So hear me out, I'm a firm advocate of candy. Chocolate, sweet, sour, I love it all. I have a sweet tooth. But I'm sure that we have all felt that stomach-clenching sickness that comes when we've eaten too much candy. What is so sweet and delicious at first quickly becomes sickly and harmful. Not only that, as good as candy might taste, it does not have any kind of nutritional value, and in no way is it able to sustain us. I recently taught on Isaiah 55 in my life group, and while we looked at several verses here in that chapter last week, I want to visit some earlier verses, because through my study, this concept became vivid to me. In the first few verses, the Lord, through Isaiah, offers us an alternative to the world's candy. Isaiah 55, one through two says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? At first glance, water and bread don't sound super appealing. They don't offer any sweetness to draw us in. But if you were starving, wouldn't you be begging for bread and water because you know that they would bring sustenance? The world offers us candy. It promises us that sin will bring satisfaction and it's wrapped in something that seems so sweet at first glance. But the world and its darkness can't sustain us. What satisfies us and nourishes us? Living water and the bread of life. Offered to the Israelites by God in Isaiah 55 and over 500 years later to us by Christ. As we grow closer to the Lord and as we taste and see that he is good, the Lord graciously shows us just how mouth-watering and satisfying that bread and water are. And suddenly the candy that the world offers is no longer appealing to our reborn hearts. You might be wondering by now what the point of this whole tangent is, and here it is. The Lord gives us the eyes to see sin for what it really is, and he alone offers us something better. As we gain in this knowledge and begin to see our sin for its true self, it gives the devil an opportunity, though, to convince us that the Lord's favor is tempered by our sin. Right, we looked at this in the final chapter of this week's lesson. The Lord has perfect knowledge of the grossness of our past and present sins. And while humans would tend to recoil from such filth, looking with disgust at someone who would be so awful as to stoop to such horrible deeds, the Lord looks on us with pity because his love for his children is boundless. It cannot be quenched by our darkness. In the last chapter of the lesson, we looked at Romans 5, 6 through 11 to assure, assure us of this. And I wanna read verse 10 again for you now. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. 
Ortland informs us on page 193 that the saving this verse talks about isn't our justification through Christ at our conversion, but rather our saving from final judgment and the assurance of our rebirth. Christ gave up his equality with God to come reside in all of human brokenness so he could die for us while we were enemies. Scripture assures us that now, not only are we not enemies of God, we are daughters of the King, adopted into his family. Christ died for us when we were lusting after darkness. But as Ortland puts it, if God did that back then, when you were so screwy and had zero interest in him, then what are you worried about now? Our future is secure, rock solid, invincible. So before I send you off to your table discussion, I wanna clear up one thing that could be misinterpreted from this assurance of salvation. You might've thought that I had forgotten about that second extreme that I mentioned earlier, that rich mercy can drive us to, but I told you I would come back to it. So what we go, can go through our lives confident in our spiritual standing, it does not mean that we can go running after sin, expecting that grace will be waiting for us when we're ready for it and when we need it. If we are to grow and live in Christ, then just like I said all the way back in week three, if you can remember that far back, we need to have the same mentality as Christ, hating sin with every fiber of our being. The Lord did not condescend to earth so that we could take advantage of his sacrifice. If we view grace in this way, we are taking something of precious value and debasing it to something insignificant. It would be like taking a diamond earring and using it to hold up a post-it note on a bulletin board. The grace given at the cross is our lifeblood. Paul puts it this way in Romans 6, one through four. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized in Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have new life. We should not be willingly going back into the grave that we were saved out of. So go out from here, walking in that new life, confident and sure of the Lord's rich mercy and never ending love for you.